Hey everybody, welcome to the Relax and Enjoy Health Podcast. My name's Andrew French and I'm your optimal health, well-being and balance coach. This is episode number one, our very first episode where we talk to Dax Moy, who is known as one of the UK's most expensive personal trainers and premier lifestyle consultants. Let's get into the interview. Is it stupidly early in the morning for you? Um, it is currently 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> very, very, very keen, I must say. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It really, really doesn't. No, it really doesn't. It, it really doesn't. Let's have, thing, let's have some fun. The one thing I've learned over the years is that if you don't think of it as a night's sleep and think of it as a nap, it is amazing. Because there you go, yeah. who's, who's unhappy with a two-hour nap before you have to do something? Absolutely. Well, you know, like kind of that, you know, saying that, like that's really what soldiering was like. You kind of, you, you don't know when you're getting it. So you enjoy the sleep while you've got it. And somehow you always manage to wake up and get shit done. And <laughs> you just, you know, you just live for it. You know, it eventually catches up with you. But I remember yeah, going course. weeks and weeks, weeks at a time on, on two hours here and 30 minutes there and, and it, we still got a lot done. No, that's exactly right. So, Dax, we're just going to jump right in, if that's all right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. pretty much, I'm just going to go through, you know, everything you read on the on the internet about Dax Moy. So, we're, okay. we're looking at yeah. very, very humble beginnings, you know, and then from growing up and everything, right through to experiencing a very traumatic, life-changing event with uh, mother and stepfather. Uh, mm -hmm. served as a soldier like, soldier, like you just said, uh, one of the UK's top paid personal trainers, written several books, has won awards from the National Academy of Best-Selling Authors, won an award for the National Academy of Expert Speakers, appeared on UK talk shows, featured in magazines, newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, Cosmo, Grazia, Men's Health, uh, international speaker, international coach, international creator of certificate courses, neuroscience, endocrinology, pain management, performance coaching, referred to as a premier lifestyle consultant. To me, that's the best thing like ever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like the most expensive personal trainer in the United Kingdom. So having said all that, Dax, please, Tell me who Dax Moy is and what you do now. Well, let me say, I'm, I'm smiling away as you're reading that list because it actually kind of uh, it, it tickles me a little bit. When you, I wrote a post not too long ago, and I was talking about how when I when I put my various, if you want to call them that, my various accolades and achievements and all that, when I put them all out, it just sounds like complete bullshit. It sounds like like if I if I reference that from where a where I came from. And B, what I know of myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who has to kind of wake up every morning and put my socks on one at a time kind of thing, same as everybody else, right? Uh, but you, you hear all that and you go, shit, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, so it's, it's making me smile to actually even hear that myself. It's, all, I ne it's one of those things I never take it for granted, what I've been able to do, who I've been able to work with and all that. I never take it for granted. Um, and it always kind of tickles me a little bit. Always makes me makes me a little bit a little bit kind of envious of myself temporarily. I'm like, wow, that's a, that guy sounds brilliant. <laughs> exactly. So, Fine. Just just doing when you type out your resume, and it's just like, who is this guy? I want him working for me. See, if if somebody sent me that, I'd think they were bullshitting. I think 
they, they were just making it up and like they've just you know when people pad out their cv and the kind of you you read it and you go that's that's bullshit no one's, no one's done that <laughs> exactly you know, right. I, kind of, I put up my my list of all the places i've traveled to and all the things i've done in them and like you know and i'm like shit that's me you know and i but yeah i mean who is dax moy i mean that's that's a list of things i've done jobs i've had and places i've been to and bits of paper and certificates and awards and stuff have been given but you know all joking aside i i i guess there's two there's two halves to it i see literally every single person as special and i'm very very certain that most of us are underperforming in our lives while whilst at the same time believing we're doing the best we can right so kind of there's that paradox there um the flip side is that you know i am i just see myself as a normal guy like i i have problems and challenges and successes and wins and dark days and light days and all the rest of it. Um, but I think one of the things I've been very good at during the course of my life is to be reflective about that and to try and turn all of it, like the wins and the losses, into interest, not not just navel-gazing for navel-gazing's sake, but like, okay, so what does that mean? And what does that mean about me? And what does that mean about me in that moment and how I was showing up and who I was being to other people and all that kind of stuff? So... I love the fact that, you know, you know, that, like I say, that really made me smile, that introduction. Um, I really love that, you know, kind of, but most of the time that doesn't feel like me. That doesn't feel like, you know, all of the, I'm not constantly aware of all those achievements until they're spelled out and put in one long list like that. And you go, whew, that's pretty amazing. So most days I'm just getting, (laughs) yeah, most days I'm just getting on with shit and, (laughs) and, and, you know, like most people trying to figure out what my next direction is going to be and, and where I want to go and how long I want to spend there and, and all of that kind of stuff. So both, both physically and you could say kind of spiritually, emotionally, like where do I want to go and how long do I want to spend there? Today I'm feeling angry. Like, okay, do you want to get rid of the anger at the moment? No, I'm really, really pissed off. So I want to be angry. Okay. How long do you want to be angry for today? All right. Well, maybe let's, let's do a couple of hours of it and then get back to life. You know what I mean? Uh, that's, that's kind of how I, how I try to approach it. I'm not always successful, but it's how I try to approach it. No, that's fantastic. Um, so I'm in a very unique position, Dax, that I don't know you. I internet know you. So I literally have pretty much followed you for about 10 years. You know, many years ago, I... You stumbled upon a group, Dan Meredith, you know, who has one of the entrepreneur groups in Facebook. And, you know, there's there's key people that, you know, stand out and come out. And one thing I found from every time you would appear in, in there is that you would always appear to be someone who would come into a conversation and you would literally grab something someone had said and you would take it so deep to a point that no one had ever even considered taking it there. And nothing ever phased you, nothing ever riled you. It was just like, I'm, I'm just gonna leave this grenade here and I'm just gonna step back a bit. But uh, it's almost like a parent going, you know, I, I just want you to think about what you've done, you know? And, and it's just like, <laughs> I want you to, you know, Think about what you said. Think about why you said it. Think about how you said it. Think about how people make you feel. And and it's almost like the entire conversation just pauses for about 10 minutes and everyone's just like, oh, right, okay. Well, I see. 
we could do it from this point of view. So all of a sudden, it's it's almost like you step in, changes everyone, change everyone's thought process, and just step back out of the conversation and disappear again into the mists. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons why I've gotten good at that over the years is is mostly in uh, coming back to that self self reflection I spoke about. I I have a lot of challenges with challenges with not just with anger but with high level rage and when like I, I am kind of one of those it's a bit like Bruce Banner the kind of the friendliest guy in the world turning into the incredible Hulk the most destructive force you've ever seen and I I can be that guy really easily and there's, there's, a, there's a scene in one of the Avengers movies where they kind of he was saying like the secret was not not how to prevent himself from being the Hulk, but you know, kind of like like he's naturally like the Hulk all the time, yeah. and he's he has to work at being angry Bruce all Banner, the time, right? And and that's that's kind of, that's kind of me. Like I have, I I have an intention of being this guy of peace and this guy of introspection and this guy of um, kind of trying to figure things out in a really in a really kind of friendly way. And I've but I've always got the I've got the Incredible Hulk waiting to punch his way out of me and kind of. You know, it's not like when I go into some of these forums and groups that I, I don't want the immediate thing that wants to burst from my fingers is like, fuck you and all you stand for you. Right. That's there's, there's part of me that wants to do that. Um, and then but I, I guess on the on the one hand, the way I think about it is if this person with this level of rage and this level of the incredible honk wanting to burst out can take the time, think it through, stop his fingers moving on the keyboard and actually come up with something useful, then I truly believe that anyone can. Like, and it's just that we don't, we don't put that pause in between kind of ripping off the shirt and turning green. We go, we look at something and we, we decide to turn green straight away. We, we decide to be offended. We decide to be hurt. We decide to be enraged, right? And we just lean into that. And instead of saying, right now, I'm deeply offended. Hold on, what, what, what am I really pissed off about right now? And is there is there a chance that what this person is saying A might be right, B might be right for them, C might be right for them some of the time, D might be wrong, right? And then so now you start opening up to all of the different interpretations and all the different meanings of things, and you go, there's there's this element of, you know, it's pro probably one of the most one of the most kind of important uh, questions to ask yourself, which is who the fuck am I to play God with everybody else? Right, like, like I have an opinion, and I'm hurt, and I'm angry, and I'm upset, and I'm, but, but who is it for me to say uh, Dax Moy is in the building now, and I'm going to set everyone, set everyone on the Dax Moy path, and you're going to do it my way? But if that sometimes happens in the way you're describing, like if I come into a room and it's like you know the the grown up has entered the room, it's only because I've I've taken the time and given voice to the parts of people that are there already. But they just allowed themselves to run with their incredible Hulk. But the kind of the, you know, the the Bruce Banner part kind of came out and went. Mm, maybe there's maybe there's this other thing that we can look at first before we start jumping down that hole. And so yeah, I mean, I, I, I get why people get so angry online uh, because we're online is kind of it's like feeding the beast. It's uh, we we. The whole idea about the online community is it's immediate consumption, which means immediate emotion, which means immediate reaction. And we, we have to we're still kind of quite juvenile in our usage of, of online forums as a as a tool. We don't really understand it. We don't really know how to use it. And a lot of people, unfortunately, aren't taking the time to learn. 
that's that's incredible. It's just so yeah, it's just so we're angry all the time, and I've noticed that a lot over the last couple of years with all the, the pandemic and everything like that. But mm. one thing, like having said, I've seen you over and over. It's just like this massive. Everyone talks about the hero's journey, and I have noticed that this is literally like watching you over the last decade has just been literally the hero's journey. But I've noticed every single journey is this whole thing has been made up of mini journeys. So, you know, mm. we, we, I said earlier about, you know, humble upbringings. I mean, we, I mean, I've only got, you know, all my British TV shows to see all your, your squats and, and all your uh, council estates and everything like that. So I see that and I'm just like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty harsh. But I, I want, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, you know, if you can just discuss briefly, you know, the incident that happened with, you know, uh, your mum and, and stepdad, yeah. which, which basically it feels like it started this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously my, my, my stepdad came into my life at age six. Um, I never met, met my real father, so I had no idea who that person is, but kind of my, my stepdad came into my life at age six um and he was a glaswegian kind of a, a gangster in glasgow had spent a lot of a lot of his life in prison even up to that point and even during the time that he was my dad he was in, in and out of prison quite a lot kind of you know violent alcoholic um extremely temper temperamental kind of mostly took out his rages on my mum which I was always extremely physical often took it out on us as well but kind of de definitely on my mum and this was kind of on and off all, all the way through childhood really and then uh, uh, at the age of around about 15 and a bit uh, kind of I yeah I woke up to my mum but a little bit I'd, I'd intervened in other things that had gone on between them over the years but on this particular night I woke up to my mum screaming kind of I woke up in shock ran into the ran into the living room punched my dad pulled my hand away and, and my my hand was wet with blood because I hadn't actually punched him in the process of waking up. I grabbed a hunting dagger. I was an army cadet and I had hunting daggers and things like that in my bedroom. So I'd punched a hunting dagger kind of into the lower aspect of his chest and he hit his heart. Um, yeah, and it was it was, it was was me that nearly killed him. So and it was also me that kept him alive. So I kept him alive till the paramedics came. But yeah, I was at age 15, I was originally charged with um, attempted murder. Now, it never went to court. It was kind of all, it was all dropped and all that kind of stuff. It was uh, self-defense in the eyes of the law. Plus, my, my dad chose not to, not to prosecute as well. So um, it, it went against his sense of honor being a, a Glaswegian gangster. Um, so, you know, uh, and weirdly enough, he was very proud of me for doing it, for sticking up for his mum, so, uh, for sticking up for my mum. So it was, it was a, bit, a bit of an odd one, but. Yeah, that's that's. I, I left school at age fifteen um, because basically, I at that point, I actually thought I was going to be going into prison. I was on remand, so I, I didn't I, like I was on bail. But I didn't have to go into prison while I was waiting for the court case. And I we we full on thought there was going to be a court case, but it never actually ended up happening. The, the charges got dropped. But of course, like being fifteen and going to school every day and. Uh, studying your subjects didn't really appeal very much when you thought you might be spending <laughs> spending a yeah. chunk of your life in prison. So I dropped out of school and then the charges eventually got dropped. And instead of going back to school, um, I got permission from my mum to join. I, I was going to do it anyway, but I got permission from my mum to join the Parachute Regiment Junior Leaders, um, a selected group of, a selected group anyway, because they're airborne and all that kind of stuff. But the Junior Leaders was 
um, young men who'd been picked out at the time for having high qualities of leadership who would then go on to be the, the army's next generation of kind of corporals and sergeants who would lead the men in the field. So I, I was picked out for that. And because I, I had had to wait a while for the joining date, so I went to live in in Wales and kind of part of that I was in the Brecon Beacons. So I'd run up and down the Brecon Beacons with, uh, with like 30, 40, 50 pound packs on my back, get myself fit and ready for the parachute regiment. So yeah, I spent about six months living in fields and in tents. And then I, I burrowed out a, a hole in the ground near a riverbank and would catch fish and hunt and trap and all that kind of stuff. So it was me just 15 years old, kind of look, not, I don't think the British countryside is anywhere near like living in the bush in Oz, but it's, you know, kind of that it was, it was, I guess the, the closest equivalency It's like a 15 year old lad living, living out in the bush by himself for six months. So that, if you can picture that. Wow. It's like hardcore bear grill survivalist. Yeah. That kind of stuff. But I was still, I was still popping into town to buy chocolate because I was 15. Remember? <laughs> exactly. One thing I find is like every, every single thing, every man or every woman, every person is doing the best they can with the tools they have. So you look at the environment that you've grown up in and we were just talking about the Hulk and you have that inner rage and stuff. But then it's amazing at the same time that the inner Dax came out who, you know, wow, saved his life. So you responded with the tools you had and, uh, you know, however, your inner inner person came out and you know and helped to save him and save his life and stuff. Yeah. And I find one thing I find is each instance you've grown from that instance, and you have actually moved on. So you know, then so whack. That's immediately it seems like that's triggered the next stage of your life. The next stage of your life, it's it's just like whack. Did something, responded, got better from it. And it's it sort of initiated to the next part of your life. So the next part of your life, you went into the military. You were there for how many years were you in the military? Well, so I, I didn't stay with the parachute regiment. So I've, I've served with parachute and commando units over the years. Um, but I spent most of my time, actually, as a, res as a reservist. Um, so I spent some time in the regular forces, but most of my time as a reservist. But I, I did about, let me see now. So I would say about 17, 18 years in in green if you will um as so I, I was trained in in lots and lots of different skills everything from physical training instructor to explosives to um uh what what else was i like a medic yeah so like a bunch of a bunch of different skills that uh, that i was able to get as a reservist that i wouldn't necessarily have been able to get as a as a full-time soldier because in the in the full-time military you normally pick a trade and that, that trade or that skill is what you kind of get lumbered with and you it's very difficult to transfer across. But when I became a reservist, they're always um, goading you on with a new course or a new thing that you can go and do and all that kind of stuff. So that suited me really well. And that was, that's where I was able to then start to really work on building up my civilian life and building up the civilian career as a personal trainer and, and moving on from that point. So, but yeah, I, I would say about 18 years in green. Then I, then I became a... I was also an Army Cadet Force instructor, and weirdly enough, I've just recently gone back to being an Army Cadet Force instructor. So I work with I work with kids teaching them all the military stuff now. I've been involved in it again for the last four months, and I think that was partly down to uh, lockdown and uh, lockdown boredom and stuff. And it really made me start. You know, I travel a lot in any given year normally, and lockdown just meant that all of my usual freedoms were gone, like all of us. 
Uh, yes. My travel, which is a huge part of my life, was gone. And my travel is always is I do a lot of personal travel, but a lot of my travel is tied into my work, which is where I run my retreats and all of that kind of stuff and my courses. And so my sense of making a difference and showing up in the world kind of really, really helping people was gone. And, and so that kind of woke up. OK, if you're not going to be able to travel for a while, what could you do here? And I went back through it. You know, this is where it comes down to really knowing yourself. I went back through the list of all the all the times in my life where I felt really on track and making a difference and purposeful and all the rest of it. And I went, well, some of those you can't do right now and some of these you can't do and some of those you can't. What can you do out of what's left? They're like, oh, army cadets, like working, working with the kids again, making a difference, teaching them. Basically, it's teaching them to be self-reliant. Like very few of them actually go on to join the armed forces. And it's not the remit of the cadets to try and get kids to join the armed forces. So that's a bit of a fallacy from outsiders. What it is, is we're using military frameworks to teach people to be confident problem solvers. Um, to come across issues and challenges and 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 face them courageously and confidently and, and competently. And so what you do with those skills once you leave cadets is completely up to you. But while we're, while we've got them, we're able to kind of teach them a lot about themselves. And that's certainly an approach I take. So, yeah, like I've yeah, I've been doing that again for about the last four, four and a half months and really enjoying it. I can't believe how jealous I am of these kids that have found Dax Moy at the beginning of the journey, not at the end. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's just, ah, that's incredible. But what, when, at what point did you start the actual coaching people? Like you, you've, all right, let's go the most expensive personal trainer in the United Kingdom. So how do you, how would you're a reservist you're so you're learning all this stuff so at what point did all of a sudden you become not only a personal trainer which as i know personally it's just like you're just struggling to find a client you're struggling to find somewhere to be as a personal trainer in a gym you're struggling yeah. all of a sudden then you have to learn marketing you have to learn this you have to learn that how did you get overcome all that to get to be like the number one in the place yeah, and it happened really, really quickly as well. It's about within within eighteen months, I'd gone from just get like so. I had my PTI qualifications from the army, but most gyms weren't even interested in that. I was kind of I think they had a they had a mental block for it. Like, oh, we don't you know we don't want you treating our gym goers like like you know soldiers. And so I'd I'd be I'd done a few things, a few jobs. I'd I'd kind of started like a bit of a handyman company. I'd been a bodyguard. I'd worked in the sewers. I'd worked as a road sweep. I'd done loads of different things, right? And I, and I knew that, like, some of them were literally just to pay the bills for the family because there were there wasn't regular money coming in. So it's like, okay, you wake up and you feed your family. That's that's what a hopefully that's what good men do, right? They they wake up and they make every effort to go and feed their family. Um, and so I did that, but all the while I, I was very clear that most of these things were temporary. I had this. You know, kind of being ex-forces, like people have told me about bodyguarding and stuff like that. And I looked into it and sounded okay. The money seemed good. But when I when I did the job, it was I only did it for a very short period of time. It was I didn't didn't like it. I didn't like the like what it was about or kind of the people that you had to work with or the way that you had to work with the people that you had to work with mostly. Um it was very subservient and all that kind of stuff. And it just really wasn't me. And then I thought, well. You know, I'd been involved in fitness since the age of 12. I've been a, I've been a boxer. Uh, I joined boxing at age 12. I joined the Army Cadets at age 12. So I've been very physical. I joined some of the most physical regiments in the British Armed Forces. Um, and so I was really into that. And I, I knew I loved fitness. I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, tw you picture now back 
it's not like 24 years ago there weren't personal trainers, but it wasn't a normal thing. Like most people didn't have conversations about personal trainers 24 years ago. Um, it was kind of it was a reserve and a preserve of the kind of the high and mighty, the rich and famous, right? Kind of your your average person on the street didn't really have them. And I I, I took a kind of a very basic gym instructor's course at the Y at the YMCA and got my qualification. And I went along and got a job at my local gym, which was a leisure center, council-run leisure center. And all they could offer me was two hours a week at this place at five pounds an hour, right? So I had a guaranteed income of 10 pounds a week for working at this place. And I went in there and I I basically, uh, I in everything I do, I'm, I'm not the minimalist guy. I'm the guy who, who kind of puts 100% into everything. So I went, I was being paid for two hours a week, but I would spend around 30, 40 hours a week in the gym and I would do my own training and then I would walk around and speak to the members. And then I'd see somebody doing something that was going to hurt them on, on a machine and I'd help those. And I'd, I'd see somebody who um, seemed to be spending a lot of time in the gym every week, but not really making any gains. And I'd have conversations with them. And it was just learning about people, learning, learning how to communicate with people. And I wasn't at the time, I wasn't allowed to be a trainer at the gym because I only had a gym instructor's qualification, not a trainer's qualification. So I was taking a taking a course in in, in PT at the same time. And on this, as soon as I was allowed to be a trainer there, I more or less had a ready made client base. I, I the day that they said, OK, you've got the tick in the box and you can work here. Everybody in the gym knew my name. Everybody had had some kind of service from me. Everybody had had an affinity with me for being, oh, Dax is the one you go to. And so I, I went almost overnight from being like I was the new kid on the block as a trainer. But I, I ended up within about six to eight weeks having more clients than the other five trainers that worked at the gym all put together. Um, and then I created a waiting list. And I started out on and I, I, I still remember to this day having a conversation with my wife going, hey, what should I charge? And we were like, I don't know. Like, what can you charge? Right. And we're like, I don't know. And so I chose like 25 pounds an hour just as an arbitrary number. And I remember having the first telephone conversation. My wife's sitting in the background. I'm talking to this person, right? And I'm trying to sound like I'm all caught up. Oh, yeah, it's like 25 an hour and you have to buy a minimum of 10. And the person on the other end of the line went, yeah, okay, sounds good. And I put the phone down and went, Jesus. <laughs> right? And me, me and my wife looked at each other. I was like, 25 pounds for one hour's work. You know, that was, to me, that was in the realm of being like a professional. You know, that's that's what kind of, you know, kind of higher level professionals are starting to earn. And I think I, I stayed on 25 pounds an hour for my first five or 10 clients. And then I went to, I, I jumped pretty much straight from 25 to 40. Um, so eight weeks later, I was 40 pounds an hour. Eight weeks later, I was 60 pounds an hour. Um, by the end of that first first year of being a trainer, I was, I think I was 100 pounds an hour. Um, I topped out at but when I stopped charging by the hour, I topped out at 250 pounds an hour. Um, I don't know what that is in Aussie, but kind of. Let's just of, double it. <laughs> right. Uh, I topped out of that. But then, you know, kind of by the time I by the time I stopped being a trainer altogether, I'd stopped selling by the hour and which kind of I was up at like 50K per year. Um, so, you know, it was it was a there were there were big jumps. Like once I found my feet, once I knew what I what I wanted from my clients what i knew what i once i knew what i wanted from the business it became very very clear what direction i should take with things um and for me i mean I, i'm not going to say it was never about money in the early stages it was i we were we were broke and we didn't really have very much 
Um, that first gym instructor's course was £325, and that was we had exactly £325 in the bank account at the time. So it was a 100% investment of everything that I had to do that first that first course. Um, obviously, I know what that's back. like. <laughs> paid back hundreds of thousands of times since then, but, you know, that's that, amazing. That, was a, that was a big investment. Yeah, and so, you know, along, along that journey, um, I became, I was also, whilst working as a personal trainer, I was also working as a, I was a, the senior consultant in the in the UK's very first GP referral program. So the pilot group of that in the for the whole country was run in my borough that I lived in, and so I became a consultant on that, and then I became a senior consultant, and then I then I became a consultant to the government to the to the NHS on that side of stuff, and I was also a uh, a, um, a a neural rehab specialist as well. So I was working in centres with people that had, had strokes, traumatic brain injuries. Um, all different types of neurological conditions and helping them get out of wheelchairs and walk for the first time in decades, some of them. And I was, I was doing things that I was told wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be possible. You can't, like, you won't get this person out of a chair. I don't know why you're wasting your time on it. And kind of six weeks later, the person's out of the wheelchair standing on their own two feet. And I, then I had doctors from the neurological hospital inviting me in to come and give lectures. So you imagine this, right? There's a guy who's basically, his training has mostly been at the wine with the army. But I'm going in to speak at, at neurological hospitals to rooms full of professors, trying to explain to them why why their their theoretical knowledge of neuroscience wasn't panning out with their clients, and why my really low level of neuroscience knowledge was right. How how come you're getting that person out of the wheelchair, and how come you're getting that person to move an arm that they haven't moved for ten years? And I'm like. Well, here's my theory. And along the way, they they cross-educated me because I, I thought it was happening for one reason and then say, well, no, what's actually happening as, at a neural level is this, 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 and this. But we hadn't thought of doing it that way before. So it was, it was like really, really cool. And so obviously along that journey, my confidence as a coach grew, my value as a coach grew. Um, and yeah, like kind of it's, you know, it's been a, it's been an amazing journey. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I, I know I know a lot of things over the years because I'm a true geek. I mean, I, I, I study more than anybody else I know. I'm, I've spent an absolute fortune on books and seminars and courses every year. Um, but those early days really, really set me up brilliantly as that's, you know, long-winded answer to your very short question about getting to be the, the highest paid trainer in the UK. But that's, that's, quite, that's kind of it. It's like I was, I was a geek. I was willing to do things that a lot of people weren't willing to do work 40 hours a week for 10 pounds per week right like there aren't there aren't many people willing to do that but the investment really really paid off and i i wasn't i wasn't business savvy enough to know what i was doing right i didn't know what i was doing i didn't know any marketing i didn't know any advertising i didn't know any salesmanship at all i just knew that i i just knew from a, like a very human perspective of like if i were in the gym and somebody were approaching me, how would I make my decision about whether I wanted to wanted to kind of invest my meager funds with them? Like, what would make it a no-brainer? Like, well, I'd want to know that they knew their stuff. I'd want to know that they had good intentions. I'd want to know that the results that they could get were better than I could get by myself. I'd want, like, and I just came up with this list of things that I would want to know before investing in anyone. And I just went into the gym for for kind of 38 hours a week unpaid, who I was only getting paid for two, so 30 hours, 38 hours a week unpaid. And I I made those things happen. I made it that investing in me would be a no-brainer. And that's that's kind of where it all started. 
I just love the. All right, we'll just call you John the Baptist from now on. But I just love the fact, like even like stemming right back to that incident with your stepdad. The simple fact that okay, this bad thing has just happened, but I'm going to keep him alive. And there is no doubt in your mind that uh, this is what I'm going to do. And the same thing has stemmed through all these people you're telling me about. You know, I don't know that he's not supposed to be able to get out of that chair because I don't have that knowledge. So I'm just going to get him out of the chair. And Bugger gets out of the chair. So I just love the fact that there is no doubt in your mind that this is going to happen. And it you just find a way to make it happen and don't listen to these people and i i just love the fact that it's you know they usually say through lack of knowledge my people perish but through lack of knowledge you seem to have you know exceeded all expectations absolutely um, i mean i i like i said i'm a true geek so knowledge knowledge acquisition is really important to me but back then i was i was naive enough not to know what I didn't know, if you know what I mean. So just like, screw it. Like, this guy's told me he wants to get out of this chair. This guy over here has told me he'll never be able to. And I'm like, well, why? <laughs> why? Like, if he's, if he's sat in his chair and he can feel his toes, that means that there's no, there's neural connection. If he's sat in, his, sat in this chair and he can, he can feel his hips, that means they're neural... Like, okay, well, if you can feel it, surely we can just wake it up a bit. And that's kind of... That's how I always used to speak to clients. It was like... Just, your muscles are just asleep. Let's get them awake. Let's let's get them doing something else. And sometimes it'd be so. Very often, what happens in the case of a stroke, for example, you've got a neural pathway, a neural pattern that your brain selects called "take the can from the cupboard," right? And it goes like that, right? And it's just like if you don't think about it, you go, "Oh, there's a can of beans. I want a can of beans. Take the can from the cupboard." And that's the neural pathway. Once that gets corrupted, if you want to call it that, through let's say a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Take the brain from the cupboard, and your brain goes, "Oh, I haven't got that pattern anymore." But sometimes you can say, "Let's do something that you that you don't normally have a name for." Let's let's do something called place your elbow on the ceiling. Boom! And they go, "Well, I don't have a pattern for that." And so suddenly they're able to do it, right? Because they've never really thought. When you think about it, like grabbing a can from the cupboard is raising your elbow and extending it, extending your arm, right? But that they they can't do that anymore. So you go, okay, can you try and put your elbow on the ceiling? I've seen people who can't do this suddenly go, boom, oh, yeah. And then they look and they go, crap, how did that get there? Right? And now you go, oh, could you could you do like a like this move? Can you do a karate chop toward the ceiling? And they go, boom. And you go, well, can you turn your palm up toward the ceiling? And then they're suddenly able to do it. And you go, right. So now instead of grab can from cupboard, let's do raise elbow to the ceiling, karate chop, turn your palm. Boom, 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 right? And their, their arm suddenly starts to come up. And so that's that was the experience that I had. And I was too naive and unknowledgeable enough to know how rare that was and how uh, and how kind of powerful that was. Uh, people hadn't told me any of this. I just kind of figured it out that, to me, it made sense. Like, in the army, they always taught us, if you can't do a thing a certain way, look at look at it how you, another way that you could do it. And that's all I was doing at the time, just saying, what's another way we could do this? That's amazing because my wife and I had a massage and personal training gym and like we would literally do things and like people with frozen shoulders, they'd be all like, you know, you'd be working on their arm and getting them to move it a little bit more, a little bit more. And they'd be like, yeah, well, as you can see, I can't get my hand above my head, you know, and they just, and they wouldn't even realize that we'd actually got them to the point where they could actually do that movement. So it's, yeah, yeah. 
I was, it's cool for me to actually, you know, figure out what it's called and all this type of stuff. But <laughs> um, it's amazing the amount of knowledge, like everything I feel like I've learned over the years. All I've learned is that I don't know anything. That's, I actually, I actually, someone actually called me an educated idiot the other day. <laughs> so for the Which simple fact, I, I know, I, I was not offended. I'm just like, you know what, it's <laughs> not wrong. And uh, so I think, I think it's amazing the amount of different things we've learned and all the different things you've learned over the years and everything mm. that's brought you, you know, to, to the next level of the hero's journey. Like you can only go with the tools that you have within within you and um so i'm going to take it basically all right so we're dealing with you as a single now next thing really in my timeline for you is uh your family holiday to thailand with the tsunami that's what i have in yeah. the timeline and yeah. uh this i I don't want to bring you down because I've seen you when we started our phone, our, this conversation and you're smiley and happy and then I've made you live some shitty shit and I just see your whole face and demeanour change and I see your shoulders go down, to see your head come down and I'm just like, oh, shit, I've done this. And, you know, because I, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to leave, you know, feeling shit. Like, I don't, because yeah, yeah. I've been to the council. No, it's, all, it's all good. It's all good. You be to the counseling sessions, they dredge it all up, and then they go, Okay, now it's now that's all we've got time for today. So, you and your wife have that two hour drive. <laughs> yeah. Here's, a, here's so, a big bag of shit for you to take home, <laughs> exactly. And it's Friday afternoon, and I don't do triage. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Thailand holiday, yeah. need some time off. It's it's Christmas, I think it's around 2004, and uh, so we're on holiday with the family. Go for it. Yeah, we we just we just come over from Oz actually, so we'd spent uh we'd spent a month coming down from right, the, the northern. Outlet. <laughs> yeah, we'd be we'd be we flew into Darwin, got a got a, a big camper camper home, and then drove down to the Red Center, like all across, all the way down to Ellis, and then we came back across over over toward um toward toward the coast and came down through Brizzy and all that. So it was a massive drive, and it was. It was brilliant, but it was exhausting, right? So we just call that a drive. Yeah, you guys go out <laughs> like that for a barbecue, don't you? Kind of. We we met loads of loads of Australians on the road and go, well, how long have you been on the road today? Like, and we'd go, oh, eight hours so far. And go, oh, right, not going far then. <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, but yeah, like we we were exhausted, and we had a really good time, but we were exhausted by the end of it. And so it was never on the cards, but we decided. To, we chopped a few days of the of the caravan rent off, and we decided to go to Thailand just for some sit around on the beach over Christmas. And we we flew in. We we landed um, we landed Christmas Christmas night, um, and then the the very the very next morning we woke up Boxing Day we was going down to the down to the beach. Um, all my kids because they're all tired and all grumpy and all the rest of it. They start arguing and I remember that morning distinctly kind of shouting at them and telling them off for being pain in the ass, you know, and kind of ruin, ruin in the morning and you know, everyone was a bit upset and a bit pissed off and we eventually gets out of the the hotel and we start walking onto the beach. And as we're walking onto the beach, we've seen a guy kind of waving at us. We thought he was kind of like touting his sunbeds and parasols and but actually kind of he looked a bit invigorated. And then suddenly we just see him get swept away by a wave little boy gets what and then the waves coming straight to us toward us and so we turn around and we 
we were very fortunate. We were the only hotel in the area that happened to be on a hill. And so we sprinted up to up the hill and the water stopped rising at the height of the hotel car park, put it that way. So it was kind of destined to be, right? Uh, we, got, we got all the kids inside, uh, got them up to the hotel room. And obviously because we'd been doing we'd been doing all the all the outback kind of thing and we'd uh you know we we came kind of prepared with a bunch of kids so we had a it's not it wasn't even a great medical kit but we had a bit of a bit of a decent ish first aid kit so i i ran back out and went back out of the hotel my wife followed me down as well uh and we went down and kind of i we set up sort of like an aid station in the in the hotel lobby and i went out into the water and started grabbing people and bringing them back in um where i could and that included doing CPR on people, uh, holding bits of body together, carrying dead bodies, all kinds of stuff. So it was it was it was a pretty full on it was a pretty full on couple of hours in the water. Um, I I recently was on a on a first aid course, and it's a it's a wilderness first aid course. And one of the things that kind of re- really kind of brought this home was during the course. She, the instructor, she was talking about all of these things. She was, and she kept describing them as, but you know what? Like these are like once in a lifetime events. You won't really see this kind of thing happen, and you won't really see that kind of thing happen. Once in a lifetime, this once in a lifetime, and it just kind of there were loads of things. And then you know, at the end of the course, I said, I goes, it's really really interesting. I goes, and I'm not, you know, you're probably right um, because you know the tsunami itself is hopefully a once in a lifetime event anyway. I goes, but in you know, in a two-hour period of my life, I saw all of the injuries you told us we'd probably never see and never have to deal with. And I saw them all from, you know, complete amputations to partial amputations to heart attacks to drowning to, uh, to you name it, like literally everything that you could possibly deal with in a two-hour period I, I dealt with. Um, and yeah, like so kind of got through, got through that. And obviously, it's not like I wasn't shook up. I was shook up, but I guess... The military training took in. I had a good cry that night after it all when all the nerves had left me. But I was, I felt okay and generally felt fairly decent for the next several several years, to be honest. Um, well, I say that my my brother died the year, uh, just over a year later, and uh, and kind of he, he died. A, he didn't die in a horrific way, but how I found him was horrific because he died at home, um, and it was the middle of winter and all the radiators were on, so you can imagine what happens to. Yes. A dead body that's been left for a week with, in a house full of radios, right? Um, so I found him a year later. Um, but I kind of, I grieved him as normal as one would and then got on with life. And then about seven or eight years later, uh, it all came flooding back in one fell swoop and PTSD found me. And it just completely, um, completely kind of threw my threw my life into, into a kind of turmoil that I never, ever imagined would come up or like I kind of it certainly wasn't that I felt I was untouchable I just felt that I had the tools and the wherewithal to deal with stresses and strains and and you know kind of had coping strategy I've been teaching people coping strategies for stress and and things for, for years by this point right so I've already been really successful people were coming on course coaching courses with me about how to overcome limitations and all this kind of stuff and then suddenly I wake up one day and I find myself the kind of guy who sits at the wall for and stares crying for two hours at a time and doesn't get out of his pajamas for weeks or you know kind of you know just won't go to work and like all all of all of these kind of things you know i started drinking really heavily because i couldn't sleep so i was i i went for nearly two years on about an hour's sleep per night because i you know kind of wasn't i wasn't in a very good place 
Uh, I was still I was still able to work on occasion. So I was going into work and I was able to turn up for courses and all that kind of stuff. But who I was at home wasn't the same as the kind of the, the smiley face that people saw at work. I was bullying myself to go in, work with clients and then getting home and then dropping the facade. And then so unfortunately, my family got my, all my clients got all the good bits and my family got all the shitty parts. So, um, you know, and that that went on that went on for some time. Uh, PTSD really kicked my ass. And then, but that's where I ended up creating the the mind map program, you know, the, the neuroscience led yeah. uh, side of coaching, because up until then, I was a very good coach, like no doubt about it. I was a very good coach. But my coaching was in the realms of what you would call positive psychology. Um, it was mostly set a clear goal, pursue it with all vigor. If you want it badly enough, you'll get it. Take action, hustle, 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 all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it's all the kind of stuff. I'm, I'm certainly not anti it anymore, but I, I understand the difference and the distinction. I'm, I'm kind of, I, I understand that we can do that kind of goal achievement work when we're in a non-threatened brain and when there's when there's no real kind of dramas going on in our life. And then when we when drama does show up and when we're in when we're deep in the shit, a different part of our brain kicks in, and that has a completely different operating system. And I, at the time, didn't understand how to operate that system. I, I only knew how to operate the get up and go and bully yourself through and take action and set goals and all that kind of stuff. And then, I, you know, I, I would, I'd already been teaching seminars and workshops. I'd already written a best-selling book by this point on goal achievement. And now suddenly I'm this guy who can't make himself do anything. And nothing that I knew worked was working for me. I'm like, <gasps> and then, you know, so I, I went through this kind of... There was, a, there was like a secondary shock. It wasn't just the PTSD. There was a shock of, uh, it was like an identity crisis. Everything that I believed about myself, everything that I believed about what I'd been teaching the world and trainers and coaches, I was now in a place where I'm calling bullshit on it. I'm like, well, that doesn't work. So if what you've been teaching doesn't work, what does that mean about you? And so it was like, it was a double whammy effect. Um, and But then ultimately, okay, like all these things, it turned out to be, one of the most defining moments of my life and one of the most defining moments of my career because the understanding that my old system didn't work led me into deep diving into where I'd already had the neuroscience of the body and I had, I'd, I'd become very, very um, confident and competent around that side. I then kind of said, well, hold on. Maybe it's very similar to that guy who can't lift up the can of beans. Maybe, maybe the... Maybe my brain needs a different way of approaching this thing called happiness and success and, and peace and everything else. And so I started to explore the neuroscience of behavior rather than the popular psychology of behavior. And once I did, it was like, boom, the universe kind of exploded and, and, and things, re new doors opened for me, new possibilities, which I've then gone on to share with like thousands of trainers around the world in, in, the, in the mind map coaching. Um, but mind map, I, I can honestly say, like, my coaching would have gotten better and better, but I can honestly say people wouldn't know what mind map is and they wouldn't have this new insight to the neuro coaching perspective if I hadn't had PTSD. It, it wouldn't exist. It just it just wouldn't. I would have I would have found more and more ways to be more and more like, and this isn't meant in a derogatory way, but more and more ways to be more and more like Tony Robbins. I would have been the positive thinking guy, the get some goals and get up because up until then, he was one of my role models in terms of, oh, this guy is teaching stuff I really believe in. Um, and, you know, I, to me, he felt more right than wrong. 
And in, in so many ways, even right now, he still is, right? So I'm not putting him down. It's like, if you're in a certain part of your brain, that approach is brilliant. Exactly. But what about when you're not? And that's what the PTSD, without the PTSD, I wouldn't have been able to answer the other half of that question to see the other half of that equation. And then it, then that led me on to realizing that all of the sad, mad, and kind of the, you know, mad as in angry and, and depressed people that I met in life, that maybe they were, maybe they were stuck in, in the half of the brain that I'd been in with the PTSD. And it, it turns out that kind of, that turns out to be more true than not. Okay. The reason I did that, Dax, is because I, you know, if anyone ever actually sees this, I just want them to realize that you're a normal guy. You're a normal person. You did amazing things. Okay. So let's say you made the lane to walk, whatever. Yeah. And, but shit happens. Sometimes it's not of your doing. Sometimes it's not of your making. Sometimes it just comes out of left field, like a linebacker tackle and you are powerless to do anything about it. And there's only what all you can do is respond with the tools you have. Now, the thing I love so far about your story is it's always a leveling up. Every incident leads to introspection. Every incident leads to how can I get out of this? How can I do better? How can, what is, and the thing I'm seeing is the bigger the obstacle, the bigger the course of action you need to take to get around that obstacle. So all of a sudden we have just hit a complete, not reversal, but a complete change in direction in your belief system. We've hit a complete change in the way you coach people. And I love the fact, and this is what people need to know, I think, is the fact that um, if it's not serving you, you need to change. Don't try and force it. It's not working. And, you know, you said you were staring at the wall. You said, you know, you were drinking. And you, you at the end of the day, you're a real guy. You know, you're, you're a real man just like the rest of us. You're like every person out there that you know, receives a hit. And, you know, you know, as a personal trainer, you always take it back to, you know, you've injured the muscle. Now the muscle is, you know, where we're, we're scabbing over we're taking new blood there nutrients we're taking the shit away we've got to get rid of the old shit before we can build new shit on top of it mm -hmm. um, great word and uh, <laughs> but you know before actual healing can start you know we've got to deal with the the tattered flesh we've got to deal with the injury the hurt the bruising the the old blood dead blood you know we've, we're, we're moving all that away and and i find the the same thing because and, uh, you know, I watched the uh, webinar you did with Paul Mort and you were talking about all the different things you, uh, South America, uh, horse whisperer, um, you went searching for all these different things. And I love the horse whisperer thing because I- Yeah, I, I, had a, I had a Hopi medicine man beating drums and dancing over me as well. So, you know, kind of, I've done, I've, like I, I you know, that's one of the things I was, I was open to all of it. Like I've just said, I, I don't know, like what, all I did know was that, was that my approach wasn't working. And so I said, if, if your approach isn't working, like instead of keep using the same tools on the same problem and, you know, hoping that something's going to change, I said, well, I need a different toolkit. And that may, may have been spiritual. It may have been, 
metaphysical. It may have been, you know, it may have been any number of things. And I was open to all of them. So we talked a little bit before about, you know, you're this this man of rage that just, you know, I keep it under, you know, but I, you know, try and be better. So all these different things that have happened and, you know, I'm, well, where are we? We're, we're almost an hour into this and I shit you not, it feels like five minutes. And uh, who have you become now? I, I would say I'm, I'm not, I'm not experiencing myself in the way I want to at the moment, but I think that's because um, I'm not just try, I'm not trying to justify it, but just trying to understand it. That's because such a big part, like I, I describe it this way, right? Is that everybody has everybody has a version of a one day when I make it, I will story, right? And so for me, like my my one day when I make it, I wills were never ever about living in. Um, living in a big mansion with swimming pools and a bowling alley and a cinema and all that kind of stuff and driving a Rolls Royce. That was never my one day when I make it, I will. My one day when I make it, I will was always about the places I was going to go and the things I was going to do. And so, which is why, you know, I've, I've been to Thailand 63 times. I've been, you've seen the list of all my travels. I mean, I've been, I've been North and South America all over. I've been, I've been Ice all across Asia. Right, uh, yeah, Everest. Like, uh, you know, I've been to Arctic desert, kind of mountainous. Like, I've, I've done so many different things and been to so many different places. And so, my one day when I make it, I will story is tied up very intimately in freedom, the freedom to go and do what I want when I want to be able to do it. And so, regardless of even if I was sat here and you go, well, during lockdown, Dax Dax made fifteen million because he gave a hundred percent of his time to online business and, and cleanup. And I didn't by the way, right? Um, but let's even, I even if I made that, I wouldn't feel particularly successful because that's not one of my measures of success. No, don't get me wrong, I like money and I want to make loads of the stuff. if I could walk down the street with a wheelbarrow full of it, I'd love that, right? It'd be brilliant. Um, but for me, because uh, freedom and because exercising freedom in in the form of going to places and spending time with people I love doing the things that I really, really want to do, those are my measures of freedom. So, you know, lockdown has kind of, not not just for me, clearly, it's for everyone, but lockdown has kind of kicked that in the nuts a little bit. And, and so I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling the way I want to feel at the moment. But I, I'm certain that, you know, once the world opens up a little bit more for me, I'll, I'll probably be a lot closer to... The, the normal Dax Moy feeling, if you will, kind of the, the feeling of kind of, you know, making a difference and get up and go. But it's been, it's been that's, that's been a secondary part of this, of course, which is um, a, lot, a lot of my travels involve meeting people, running courses and seminars, looking in people's eyes and like hearing their stories and seeing, seeing the impact of my work on them and them saying how much of a difference it's made to them. And these are all parts that I've kind of missed out on during lockdown as well, because a lot of my a lot of my work is very physical. It's very um, face to face and, and intimate. And so, yeah, I'm not I'm not experiencing things the way I want to experience them at the moment, but I'm getting ready. And I'm, I'm trying to make sure that when the world does open back up enough for me to start traveling and doing the kind of things I really want to do, that I'm in a position where I can take advantage of that and and, and have all the experiences that are most important to me. That's awesome, Dax, because, um, you know, everyone has those days when they don't feel like them or they don't feel, they're just not, I call it, I'm just not feeling it. And yeah. uh, this 
could help people. What do you do on a daily basis to give you the best possible chance of success? Um, I mean, there's there's so many different elements to that. I I read every day. Um, I read something something that moves me. I, I I read something that moves me mentally, if you could say, like as in something to grow my knowledge base, like learn yep. something I didn't know before. Um, but I also read read things that move me emotionally. So kind of you know some of my some of my favorite poets are the are the Sufi poets like Hafiz and Rumi and, and things like that. And I I love reading their stuff and just taking it taking a moment to pause with with some of that some of their poetry. Um, and that's a, that's an important that's an important aspect as well. I probably though the most important thing that I do on a daily basis is reconnect every day with what my big purpose is and my my values so when i when i reconnect with my purpose and my values it's another way of me reminding myself of who daxmoy is going to be so uh, i have a sponsoring question that kind of underlies everything which is who did you say you'd be when this happens right who did you say you'd be when this happens and sometimes you don't actually have an answer which then invites you to like like oh, i never said i'd be anything anybody when this happens you go okay so now that the question is here present with you if this were to happen again who will you be next time right and it's a really powerful question when you think about it because and it doesn't necessarily imply just bad things right who did you say you'd be um when you won the lottery who did you say you'd be when you when you made a hundred grand who did you say you'd be when you made that sale or like it can be good things right but it can equally be the not so much bad things but dark side things right who did you say you'd be when you felt angry like that who did you say you'd be when um you know when you when you lost the hundred grand right when the tax bill was a lot bigger than, than you were expecting who did you say you'd be when when you were going to be in lockdown for two years and not be able to travel like who who are you going to be then and most of us never really take the time to answer that question we just wake up every day and try to reinvent ourselves from where we're standing which is always the most stressful way to do it like it's kind of like asking yourself oh how am i going to feel today well, I don't know, and I'm pissed off. But okay, yeah, you're pissed off. But who did you say you'd be when you're pissed off? Are you going to be the guy who goes in and starts screaming and shouting at your family, that version of pissed off? Are you going to go be the guy who goes in and starts talking to your family, saying, oh, "I don't know what it is, but I'm just really pissed off." Like I, I feel, I feel rage burning inside. Like if if there was someone in front of me that kind of deserved it, I'm sure I could knock them out right now. Like that's that's the level of pissed off I'm feeling right now, right? And are you going to be that guy who who voices it? Or are you going to be the guy who goes and said, oh, "I'm pissed off, so therefore today my family's going to suffer because I'm I'm feeling really really angry." And then as soon as I have a go at my family, I'm going to jump online, find the best argument I can, and then go and destroy someone from behind the keyboard. Who did you say you'd be when this happens? Yes, yeah. that's that's a that's a sponsoring question that I ask myself every day. So it's like mentally and spiritually so i was uh, i had a talk here the other day and we we spoke about you know what if mental health is just our ability to cope with what life throws at us you know which is is everything you're saying and stuff but what about physically what do you do what do you do on a daily basis for you physically i well i mean i i train every day uh like basically I, i've even even most weekends but i had this weekend off actually because I've, I've pulled my back a little bit but most days i train daily um, sometimes, uh, like for example, in April, I'll be doing a bit more of a physical challenge month. So, uh, 
kind of the the aim is like fifteen thousand push-ups, squats, and and uh, sit-ups plus five thousand chin-ups in that month. So kind yeah. of yeah. And all all I all I do is I is I I just have my total for the month, and some days I might feel like really pushing it, and someone might bang out a thousand in that day. Another day I might not might not feel like doing any today, and I might have a rest day. But but the aim is to hit the totals by the end of the month. Um, and you know, it doesn't have to be that high in thousands for anyone. You just, but just pick a, what I always say to my clients and the people that do this with me at times is, is, is pick a challenge for the month and just see it through because it's, it's one of the things that I'm constantly talking about, which, which ties in with the things that we're covering here. Really. It's about self-esteem, right? So self, self-esteem is the estimation, the value you put on yourself. That's what self-esteem is. And so how do we place value on ourselves? How do we know we're a man or a woman or a whatever we want to call ourselves? How do we know we're a person of value? And the way we know that we're a person of value is that we keep the promises that we make to ourselves. That's it. Self-esteem is the, is the grand total of the promises you made to yourself that you kept. And then you wake up, you look in the mirror, you go, fuck yeah, I did it. I did what I said I'd do. I, I, I was who I said I'd be. And I think a lot of people miss out on So, you know, you hear me say the thing about thousands and that sounds weird and like really high and all the rest of it. If somebody says by the end of this month, I'm going to do 300 push-ups and 300, which equates then to One 10 a day. per day. Yeah. Right? If you don't, if it's something that stretches you, if it's a promise you would normally um, weasel out of, if you want to call it that, right? Kind of we, we're always weaseling out of, that, out of our little promises to ourselves. But it's something you would normally drop the ball on and say, well, you know what? I'm going to see it through. Like, it, there's, it's not up for negotiation There's a po- that there's a possibility of me not doing it. I'm just going to do it. And it doesn't matter. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a blog post every day for 30 days. And I don't even know what the fuck I'm going to write about. And I don't even, right now, I don't even know whether I've got enough to write about every day for 30 days. But for 30 days, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to write a blog post. Or I'm going to shoot a, shoot a one-minute video for my tribe. Or whatever it is, make a promise to yourself and then keep it. And just see how you feel about yourself at the end of a, end of a month. Nothing majorly great has to happen. You don't have to go, and because of that, I've got rippling pecs. Or because of that, I've got 10 new clients. Or because of that, I've made this amount of money. Don't relate it to an outcome. Relate it to a, I am going to do this thing. The outcome is irrelevant. I'm going to do the thing no matter what is happening for me. And that is a that is a game changer. That's a way for you to look in the mirror every day and go, oh, I trust me. I trust me. And that's that's where we get our self-esteem from. We get our self-esteem from knowing that we said we'd do something or be something and actually doing or being that. And a lot of people don't give themselves that opportunity and they get so caught up in the outcomes. Like I... At the end of a month, I must have lost 10 pounds. At the end of a month, I must have lost two inches. At the end of a month, I must be 20% stronger. At the end of a month, I must have had two new clients or got another three grand in the bank or whatever. And if you just release the outcome and you just say, fuck the outcome, I'm going to wake up every day and do what I said I was going to do. You will meet yourself in 30 days as someone completely different. So Dax, it's killing me that, you know, it's taken me... 30 years of tripping over roots in a forest to learn all this stuff that you're telling me in this one, one hour first call. Um, that's, it's just incredible. And I can totally re- relate about the back thing. Cause I got into the gym six months ago and you know, you can deadlift 150 kilos and 
uh, two months ago, I was unloading the dishwasher and a rubber spatula put me on my ass. There you go. Unbelievable. So, <laughs> all right. Nutritionally, Dax yeah. Moy on a daily basis, how do you give yourself the best chance of success? Um, recently, I've I've not been as as skillful nutritionally as I, as I could be. Um, but normally for me, like my, my normal is I, I tend to only eat in the evenings mostly. Um, so I kind of, I don't call it intermittent fasting, but I guess that's what it is. Uh, but I, what I find is that I, I remain, remain kind of at heightened levels of mental, mental focus and function when I'm not eating. And so I would, I would rather not eat very much during the day. It kind of, it makes me a bit mentally sluggish. I'm definitely a high protein type. Um, I have been, I've done a month of, of veg, pure vegetarianism. And uh, I noticed that I got kind of weak and gloomy. Um, and this, this isn't a, this isn't a kind of thing to say this is true for everybody or that that's a, that's a natural outcome. I know some people, some people who are vegetarians who absolutely thrive on it. Um, I don't. And I've, I, I certainly thrive on adding vegetables to my protein-based diet. Um, like the, the more vegetables I eat, as long as there's a, a strong meat or fish protein source there, I, team, I tend to do very well. Um, when I take those things away, I, I can go a few days of, of um, kind of taking out meat. So I, I love dal and lentils and all that kind of stuff. And I make a, make a lot, of, lot of Indian vegetable curries here. But like, yeah, the... Uh, the meat side of stuff is actually important to me. It's, 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 I, I've, I'm a big believer in metabolic type diets as opposed to, uh, as opposed to saying that there is a universal diet that makes us all feel good and strong and healthy and alert and in a good mood and all the rest of it. So some people need a bit more of something. Some people need a bit less of something. Um, I seem to be one of those guys who seems to, seems to need a little bit more on the, more the, more the white meats than the red. Although that said, um, if I if I if I go a period of not eating a lot of a lot of meat and then I have something something red like a steak, it's it, the closest I, I can I can explain it to is it's like even even though I've never taken it, it's, it must be like taking speed or something like that. I if I if I eat red meat, I get a sudden boom and I'm like I'm alert and alive and energetic. If it's a really good piece of steak or something like that, um, I I can honestly say I've never gotten that off of uh, off of a vegetable based diet for me. So. So one meal a day is the average at the moment. moment I've been eating twice a day, which is okay. It's just not, it's not fantastic for me, but it's okay. Um, and that's just more out of social. I think my, when my, my wife is cooking and cooking something in the, at lunchtime and she says, do you want this? It's just a way for us to sit down together and, and talk over a meal, I guess. So it's, it's more that than, than a, an actual hunger. I am also one of those people that tends not to get hungry very often. So I've done like five and seven day total um, calorie fasts where I've only drunk water or black coffee. Um, and at the end of it, I'm absolutely fine. I don't feel weak. I've, I've actually physically put on muscle during a total fast as well. So I've, I've, I've also done experiments on myself that kind of shows that the resistance yep. training in the absence yeah, of calories can still build muscle. That's yep. I've done exactly the same thing, and that's what I do over the last six months. I uh, I lost eight kilos of fat and put on five kilos of muscle by uh, three day fasts, and nothing wow. but three day fasts. Eat on the fourth day, and then go straight back into another fast. And yeah, like like you said, it's yeah. everything that they say you can't do is one hundred percent possible. And yeah, you know, that gets big. I, I, yeah, 
and you don't even have to be an advocate for it, right? You can just you can just be an observer of it. You can say yeah. that's that's interesting. That like I I find it interesting that so many personal trainers and nutritionists get into these big drawn out arguments um, of all what's possible and what's not possible and what will happen and what won't happen, and just go, okay, I, I hear you, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're stating to be the science, but my lived experience is very different. <laughs> my lived experience <laughs> is. You know that that I did this thing and this other thing happened as a consequence. I can't explain it, but it happened, right? Yes. Um, exactly. So kind of, you know, ne neogenesis of muscle tissue in the absence of calories and the absence of protein. I don't know how it works, but the body does. So it, it seems to have happened. It's fantastic, and the, and the cool thing is, is this sort of brings me into my next one. Uh, you said about uh, you just sharing a meal with your wife, you know. So, family and friends, how what is the best way to give you the best chance of success? Um, it's interesting because I I don't have a lot of. I have a lot of friendliness with people. I have lots of that. I don't have a lot of very close friendships. Um, I did. I did whack when I was serving, but you kind of you tend to leave a lot of those behind, not deliberately, but kind of military relationships are very much about recency. So, kind of if, if you leave the forces and they stay in, all their their relationships are all most recent with the people that they continue yeah. to serve with, right? Um, Obviously, kind of, if you and somebody else leave the forces at the same time, you're going through the same experience. So there's a recency of that experience, right? But but very often, very often in the forces, I've found at least, is that kind of those those friendships don't sustain as much. I'm I'm mostly not looking for friendships, to be honest. Um, and there's nothing sad about. It. I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not on the lookout lookout for it when they happen. When a, when a, when a, there's a kind of a closing of a gap between me and someone else. Um, it's always pleasant and all the rest of it. But I think um, I'm largely happy in my own company a lot of the time, and I'm happy in my own head. So I like, I, I'm a really thinky kind of person. I can sit here for, I could come in here into my man cave and just sit here for four or five hours with a notebook open and scroll out ideas for myself and what I, what I want to do. Um, I have great relationship with my, with, with my family, particularly the family that still live here at home with me. Um, you know, kind of, we we have great conversations, and we're we're quite a silly family, so we're always we're always cracking jokes and playing pranks on each other and all that kind of stuff. I, I think uh, I think playfulness and and fun are a really really important part of any relationship that you're de developing with anyone. And for me, that's that's also a kind of like sign that sign that something may be not going right in your relationship when all the you know in the depths of PTSD there was no playfulness in me at all. It was just like I'd come in, I'd. I'd I'd speak the obligatory words to my family. Hi, how are you? How's your day been? What you been up to? Da, da, da. But I wasn't really listening, and I was, if I was listening, it was more more to fulfil the function, you know. Like, okay, I've I listened to you. Now your turn to listen to me. Now I'm going to go and sit over there. Um, but playfulness is a really good, I think, a really good indicator of, of the health of a relationship. And if there's if that's missing, then there, there's there's it's time to do some skillful work on your on your family. I'm so sorry, Dax. I'm um so I'm <laughs> all right. 
So I'm in the middle of Outback Queensland in a mining camp and I was using my phone as a hotspot and I've just used the entire battery of my phone in the last hour. Ah, I just there you go. There the you camp, go. Got my charger. Okay. <sighs> so no worries, mate. PTSD, no worries. you said there was no playfulness. So Yeah, I think that's a really good indicator of, uh, of the health of a relationship. And whether that be an intimate relationship, a familial one, a friendship, a business one, like is does does it leave room for playfulness? If it doesn't, you probably don't have the kind of relationship that is serving you. You, you think about like the purpose of play as an emotion. So play is one of one of um, one of the seven core emotions from a neuroscience perspective. Play is play is one yeah. of those emotions, and play is is where we get to kind of like. Um, practice practice threatening things in a non-threatening non manner right so kind of we, we push yeah. the envelopes kind of you think about kind of it happens more more in the males of the species but the the rough and tumble with the cubs and and the and you know it's nearly always dads who are kind of wrestling around the floor with, with the kids right theoretically a dangerous situation kind of the big the big popper bear kind of rolling about the floor and throwing their kids around and yet the kids feel completely safe because they know there's going to be a cutoff point. So you think you extend that out into relationships now and you go, well, if there's room for playfulness here, if we can kind of like rough and tumble each other with, with the occasional like rough language or, or kind of what could be a hurtful or painful comment, but isn't meant that way. And if we can yeah. practice, practice that, it means it's a sign that we're in a good relationship. If you say something or do something and the other person is immediately hurt, you know that there's something maybe not going right in your relationship right now some some kind of bond that maybe needs strengthening well that's awesome so mm -hmm. last one is you know we a little bit to touch on the woo-woo like spirituality is that important um it is to me it's to me but i'm, I'm not religious at all um i mm -hmm. but the, the closest the closest religion that i have affinity with is buddhism or by extension, you could say Taoism as well, but kind of Buddhism of the main of the main kind of languages in the uh, main uh, religions in the world. Buddhism is the one that I'm most closely uh, experience affinity with, um, and I, I think it's I think it's partly because it doesn't place it doesn't place the emphasis on anybody else except yourself. Buddhism, Buddhism asks you, how are you going to interpret this how are you going to do this better next time how what are you going to learn from this not uh not kind of um pray to god and hope god forgives you pray to god and hope god delivers pray to god and like so i like that. And, and, and whilst I, I do actually believe in god I, i'm not i'm not 100 certain even to this stage and it's something i've contemplated a lot i'm not certain what my vision of god might be uh, i don't i can't really explain him her it um, I, I don't really, I don't really know what my version of God is, but the, probably the closest version is, uh, akin to, uh, what I've experienced out of the conversations with God books by Neil Donald Walsh. Um, and this, this kind of, this person who, not this person, this being, this entity who is not there to make you right or wrong, not there to punish you not there to provide necessarily opportunities even but to kind of to, but to tell you the truth to tell you what's there and available for you and to help you to find your way of, of moving through life in the way that you that kind of feels most meaningful to you 
Um, and that's yeah. for me, that's what spirituality is. But like, I, I prefer a kind of uh, an individual spirituality than a global one. There's some, somebody outside of me telling me what's right or wrong, good or bad, should or shouldn't, must or mustn't, doesn't resonate with me very well. Uh, me asking myself, is that a skillful use of your time, effort, energy, emotion, resources, kind of beingness, if you will? Is that a skill? Is this the way you want to be in the world? Like, are you showing up? Are you keeping your promise to yourself? Are you being are you being the man you said you'd be? Are you doing what you'd said you'd do? And I'd love to say say that I was all the time and I'm really not. I kind of there's a lot of a lot of my life where I where I'm falling way below the measure. But knowing what the measure is, I think is the first step to reaching it. Like most of us haven't really given much consideration to how we're going to measure ourselves as we go through life. Um, and so many of those measures become external and those external, I think, or I believe, I truly believe many of the external measures that we use take us in the opposite direction of our spirituality, our sense of self, our sense of our sense of kind of who we are, what we're here to do and why that's important. I, I don't think that's something that somebody else external to you gives you. I think it's something you you discover or you or more importantly i guess you could say you remember through doing the work um and doing the work meaning sitting down day in day out over decades over kind of the entire period of your life and saying is this the best am i doing the best i can am i showing up the best way i know how yeah i love the way it's simple but it's not necessarily easy you know, right. So I, th I think like everyone, pretty much everyone wants to be better. They want to be better today than they were yesterday. They want to be an even greater person tomorrow, you know, and uh, pretty much I have, a, I have a quote that my one of my aunts gave me and it, I always thought it summed up my life and I love the fact that it sums up your life and in actual fact, it sums up everyone's life, you know, and the one with the greatest glory is the gladiator that's down in the sand with the combined blood and the sweat of his endeavors, but that survives to become stronger and strive towards his own personal freedom. And I think that's where I'm going to leave it, you know, right now, Dax. And I, Perfect. you know, everything all being said, you're still who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, you're a legend, you're an absolute legend. And I'm just so honored that you would, you know, spend an hour and a half of your time with me today that's you know one of the one of the great things of my life at this point it's really really good wow, and that's really kind you know, of you thank you so i've really enjoyed it They're good good Excellent. good questions they got me thinking like uh, and and certainly um you know that you're you're meeting this is the truth as according to dax moy on this day the 21st of march 2022 right we sit down and have, yeah. a, have this conversation a year from now it might be a whole bunch of different answers uh, because Which I might be a whole bunch of different that. me. <laughs> oh, my, my wife my wife and I are planning a trip to Dublin. We're going to do uh, St. Patrick's Day in Dublin in uh, next year. So hopefully the world is a less crazy place. And if you would be available for a coffee, I will fly my ass across to the England side of things. Sure thing. Maybe. Be, let's let's, uh, let's check in closer to the time. If, if I'm around, I'm around. I'm up for that. Fantastic. You're buying. <laughs> oh, no problem. There's no doubt of that. <laughs> Dax, thank you so very much. <laughs>
My All pleasure, right. mate. You enjoy the rest of your day. And I'm going to head off and I'm going to have myself a nap. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Everyone who tuned in today, thanks for listening to today's Relax and Enjoy Health podcast. I've been your host, Andrew French, for Optimal Health, Wellbeing and Balance. If you want to get the bullet points from today's podcast or even get access to free resources, check us out at relaxenjoyhealth.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or even leave a rating. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook at Relax Enjoy Health. But for now, stay sane and have a great day.